Hi, this is Shauna, the CEO and founder of Fuel Talent. One of the things I have loved most in my 25-year recruiting career has always been the stories that people tell. Stories of leadership, career choices, company ideas, and team building. My inspiration for starting the What Fuels You podcast came from being curious about people's lives and wanting to help share their stories. What path brought them to this place? What decisions did they make that led to failures and successes? Who influenced those decisions and what lessons were learned along the way? I hope you enjoy the What Fuels You podcast. Today's guest on the What Fuels You podcast is Brian Lent. Brian is a data science pioneer who has been at the forefront of data mining, machine learning, forward thinking analytics, and leading edge AI technology for over three decades. As the co-founder and CEO of Plunk, the first mobile app helping homeowners grow their largest financial asset, Brian is working with a world-class team to bring advanced data mining, AI, and ML algorithms to residential real estate. Prior to Plunk, Brian founded the mobile analytics company, Medio Systems, supporting 440 million plus users in over 100 countries. Brian also started one of the first data analytics teams at Amazon in the late 1990s when he moved to Seattle with the acquisition of Jungly. He has led groundbreaking technology work for companies including IBM, Nokia Here Technologies, and Intelligent Results. Brian earned his master's and PhD candidacy at Stanford University in computer science and is considered a key industry thought leader and author of numerous professional publications and patents. All right, Brian, so we're going to hit the rapid fire. You good? All right, let's do it. Okay. What is the best concert that you ever attended? So sadly, I haven't seen that many concerts. That's one of the failings being a tech geek. Um, so I actually will have to tell you the truth, which pains me to some degree. Uh, it was Weird Al Yankovic. I bet you that was actually a fun concert. Oh, it was a great concert. It was actually down here, and it was a, it was a blast. But if you like that parody on tech in, in the world, I think it's pretty funny. So it's it not the funny. standard answer, and you probably haven't heard it before. No, I have not heard it. What is a quote or a saying that you tend to um, live by or reference? Um, that's a good question. Um, I'd say broadly, it's do unto others that use, you'd have others do unto yourself. Yeah, the do- golden rule. I said yeah. one to my kids all the time. I'm like, if we yeah. all just did that, the world would be such a happy place. Um, okay, what would you stay up late to do or get up early to do? Well, lately, I'm staying up late to catch up on my shows because I'm doing work too late. Um, that's probably not a great excuse because I, I do believe, I'm learning to believe the early bird gets the worm. And especially with the family, it's important to have uh, time with them in the evening, but also be able to get your work time done. In the morning, uh, I'm excited to be, be more of a morning writer, which is antithetical, I think, to being a good technologist, right? Good geeks like to sleep in. Uh, but I am getting up early and exercising every day. So that's oh, good awesome. job. What are you doing for your exercise? Um, so we do, I just do a kind of a, a CrossFit routine. So usually 20 minutes to 40 minutes of aerobic and then 20 minutes of weights and vary that up. And I've been trying to do that six days a week and that's working Good for pretty, you. Yeah, I'm very happy about that. That's inspiring. That's awesome. Um, okay. What's the scariest thing that you've ever done? Um, so I'd probably have to say some of the more advanced mount, mountain biking trucks I've gone on recently. So that's one of the, the hobbies I've been getting into. Uh, or some more advanced skiing, you know, doing things I wasn't doing a couple of years are you, ago. Are you an adrenaline junkie? 
Uh, I don't want to call it adrenaline junkie. I probably like a little more mellow, even tone, but I like to build up the speed. I used to have a, a, a Viper and a GTS and took it on the racetrack. So yeah, I guess I, I, I think I you are more than you yeah. think. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. Is there a job that you would do for no money? Well, being a founder, uh, let's see, there's that one and a CEO. Uh, and that's, there's some truth to that. Uh, actually, I, I like doing a lot of jobs for no money, um, if anything, just to set a good example, right? I think that leadership style, and, and these are usually jobs I enjoy doing. So, you know, mowing the lawn, um, but yeah, in terms of helping out, um, helping people think about um, how to build homes, uh, that's something I've been able to do some volunteer work and really that's an exciting, it's something you do with a group of people, of course. Yeah. Um, okay. What is the book that you're currently reading? Uh, it's so it's actually a, a tech one and it's a speaker I heard recently. I was really inspired by a former Amazon guy. It's called Working Backwards. Hmm. Uh, I forget the full title, but it's uh, kind of the story of how Amazon has developed uh, its uh, culture and philosophy. I think it's actually very well written. It's also very practical and that those are usually don't go hand in hand. So that's kind of a current one I just got introduced to from one of our investors. Yeah. Thank you. I just wrote it down. Yeah. Um, what's your biggest pet peeve? Uh, you know, simple stuff like the toilet paper backwards on the roll. I thought you were going to say something, you know, um, kind of work related, like laziness or passive aggressiveness or lack of account, you no, know, just those, those are, no, but those are really valid answers too. I, but yeah. I, I can't call those pet peeves because, you know, when you're in the environment, you and I are in building a business, it's our jobs to correct those things. Yeah. So they can't be a peeve for that. That is actually true. Um, so I loved, loved, loved meeting you and learning all about you. And I have to go to like the origin story, where are you from? And yeah. tell me about your family and the whole, the whole shebang. Yeah, pretty modest upbringing. Uh, I born and raised in Reno, Nevada. I've been on the West Coast my whole life. Uh, mom worked at a bank. Uh, my dad's an optometrist, retired. Uh, moved to LA for a while, then moved back. Um, that's part of my story and who I became, though, was that journey and, and going to Disneyland every weekend. Um, so one of the things that really got me excited into technology, probably at the age of five, was the Disneyland Main Street Electrical Parade. I'm going to be dating myself in this podcast, of course. <laughs> uh, but the, the Main Street Electrical Parade, if you remember, it had all these uh, floats that had blinking lights. And the lights would blink and they'd do like, rink, 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 ding, 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 ding. And so, you know, five-year-old, you were just mesmerized by this. And I remember at the time watching a TV show that was called Buck Rogers in the 25th century. Uh, Gil Gerard, Gerard and Aaron Gray were the two stars. And they had these things on the ship that were like these, you know, these uh, A-frame things and they had blinking lights and people would walk around with notepads, very Star Trek-like. And I remember asking my dad and I said, you know, dad, what, what, like, what is that? It, it blinks and it looks good and it makes noises. And he said, oh, that's a computer. <laughs> You're like, so I, I want one. Yeah, I decided at five, I'm like, okay, well, I'm going to do computers for my career. And that's how I got started. At age of five. That's incredible. Yeah, five. Were you into, like, what were your parents into? Were they like, um, kind of behind you? Like, hey, let's just get behind our child. Or did they have the standard kind of ideas of what you should be? No, that's a great question. I was really blessed. And my parents are coming up into town in a week and I haven't seen them in a year and a half. So it means a lot um, to ask me that question. I, you know, my parents um, were very much hands off and very supportive of me through a lot of mischief that we'll get into. And that was really a part of my confidence and what gave me inspiration to do more. So they encouraged me insofar as my, my dad actually, um, not a true story, 
um, to help me be creative in computers before there was really a PC or I had one, uh, went to a, the junkyard, a scrapyard, and and got a uh, basically an old IBM mainframe and had the truck like deliver into our garage. We're talking about a massive thing that looked like a king size mattress. And I mm-hmm. sat there with soldering irons and wire clippers, and I fake pretended to build computers. And I would do that all day long, and they were totally supportive. They buy me tools, they buy me lights and batteries. I mean, it's all that is cool. so cool. You've said the word geek on this already like three or four times. Oh, I have. No, and just the reason why I'm asking you is because I feel like it's a word that came in to be like, you know, we're probably about the same age, and I feel like yep. I've heard it a lot in a trendy way almost the last ten years. And then I'm like, but you seem like you're actually legit. Like you, like geeking out on putting together a computer at age five. You're like, you're an OG. <laughs> <laughs> yes, the OG. There you go. I I was thinking that phrase. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I I think that's totally fair. Um, even before I was arrested a couple times by the FBI and the Secret Service for stuff, I think you know I was doing that kind of thing. Um, I didn't date till I was twenty two. So oh that's wow. Probably, Were you into I, sports at all, or like um, um, no nothing? No, I, that's it's- kind of antithetical to a geek. Unfortunately, no athletics. I wish my parents did more. To be honest, in hindsight, now that I have kids and they're doing sports, and and I love the sporting activities I'm involved with now, skiing, mm-hmm. mountain biking. Sounds like you know, you've got a lot of them. And so <clears throat> what were the family values around the house? Like, was it really clear what your parents stood for? You know, I, it, we, it was a really simple family. I grew up as an only child and it was really about being transparent. Um, and, you know, I, I'd say the single thing was their belief in me and not allowing the institution or teachers or anyone to put up obstacles, right? My dad was always like, you can do anything you want. And his story was similar. He went back to school to be an optometrist after he was in the Korean War at a time where they basically said, sorry, you're too old to go back to school. That's literally what they told my dad when he got back. And he's like, well, I have the GI Bill. I'm going to be a doctor. So maybe it's part of that, like his rebellion against the stat, you know, the institution. So Interesting. I think they were just very supportive of me being a, a studious learner. And, and I think their view, which I agree with and subscribe to, is that the more I was learning and the faster, as long as I wasn't causing too much damage, was all good. That's great. And were you a good student? Um, I wasn't initially, uh, meaning like first grade, second grade, third grade, I the teacher threw erasers at me, had to wash my mouth out with lava soap. These are things they did back when you and I were yeah. in school, or as they did to me because I was a bad kid. Yeah. Uh, or I, got, I always got on my report card, like, shows potential, talks too much. <laughs> there, I got the talks too much. Imagine that. Yeah, there, here we are now. Right? And here so, we are talking. And the teacher, we had parent-teacher meetings. Back to your question about parent support, uh, parents, we had parent-teacher meetings, and the, the, it was all about I talked too much in class. And my dad's like, great, so what's the problem? Exactly. And he genuinely meant it. And he's like, but you want kids to be, you want kids to ask you questions. And I got in trouble for asking why too much, um, which I thought was really odd. And I see my kids asking why. Yeah, it is Um, odd. And so if I got this right, did you start a company in high school, micro revelations? Is that a high school did. Yeah, that's going way back. So so to answer your other question, I, I, I became a straight A student. I've been a straight A student through high school, graduating valedictorian through undergrad. I was number one in the University of Adorino of 1300, 1400 students, and then also at Stanford. So I became a, a good student for, for the right reasons because I loved learning. Yeah. Uh, but I did start a video game company in 1993 called Micro Revelations. So I was 13 years old. And uh, unfortunately, I think people thought we're making small Bibles, and I didn't really get that. Um, so 
we're Lutheran, but I apparently didn't get the analogy to make in small Bibles. But Micro Revelations is microcomputers, and, and we did video games on the Apple II. So I did a lot of this uh, coding in uh, 65 CO2 assembly language when that was cool uh, back in the days of the inner circle and some fun stuff we'll get into. Uh, but yes, I did start that as a video game. My dad funded it. Again, more to the point of how important parents are. They funded yes. it through their HELOC. And eventually, years later, I sold it to Electronic Arts when I went to Stanford. Oh, my gosh. You're so next level. It's insane. So how did you choose Reno, Nevada for school? I mean, is that like I want to be near your home or what was your process um, like in the, the school search? You know, that's a great question. I, I had it because I, I graduated high school at Valedictorian, I had a good opportunity to at least enroll in undergrad or, or apply to undergrad universities. I was not the best test taker, so I'm very tenacious and I'm very applied and practical, but to be honest, I'm not the smartest person out there. I kind of play that on TV, so to speak. Um, so I did apply to many different undergrad and got into probably 80% of them. And it actually goes back to a conversation with the Dean of Engineering at UNR. Um, he was really spectacular and, and brought something to my attention. He said, look, for an undergrad, and I was doing my video game company at the time, operating out of my house. And so that was something that was top of mind. But he, his advice to me is he said, for undergraduate education, really, you want to go um, where you're going to get a high student teacher ratio. So you're going to have a few number of students per teacher, and you want to build your best persona and your best curriculum, and then go apply to the most difficult grad school that you can get into. So the concept of UNR was be a big fish in a little sea. Mm. And so I took him up on that advice, and I, I don't regret it. I ended up being in the honors program at UNR, again, graduated um, through a lot of hard work, the top of my class out of, uh, between UNR and UNLV. And as a result, I got a letter from the chancellor of the University of Nevada system as part of my reference letter. So then when I went to grad school, they opened up this packet and they had reference letters by a chancellor, and that doesn't happen very often. So for me, wow. that worked out really well. I could also live at home, going back to being a true geek, the OG geek. Yes. I could live at home and I didn't have any bills and I kept running my software company until I eventually graduated. Yeah, and you weren't dating it anyway, so it didn't matter. You didn't have to yeah. like show your fish tank or anything to anybody. You could be like, this I is did, my mom I and dad. <laughs> I did start dating at UNR. That's uh, my first girlfriend was a computer scientist, which I would also not recommend either. But that's <laughs> probably another story. Yeah. So you ended up getting, I mean, did you know that you were going to go on to get a master's and a PhD? Was that kind of part of the plan? No, I was very driven that way. And I, I don't exactly know why. It, it was a fait complete for me. There is not, but it wasn't, I, I, I definitely was not aiming to get a PhD because I wanted to be a PhD. It was just, that's what you do to get the highest level of attainment of knowledge yeah. in the industry. I did, however, strategically pick Stanford University because I purposely want to be at the literal heart of Silicon Valley. So remember, at this point, I'm already an entrepreneur, not successful, but successful in my own mind. And so I wanted to learn how the best and brightest of Silicon Valley built Silicon Valley. Yeah. And so even with the opportunity to go to Berkeley, which I could argue in some ways was a, or is a better school in computer science than Stanford in some areas back then, Stanford was at the literal heart. And MIT and Cornell and others that I got into and what was fortunate, I turned down because, it, again, it didn't bring me closer to the ability to truly understand how to build you know, great tech companies. Yeah. Was that the right choice for you in, in retrospect? I think so. Without a doubt. I mean, it, you know, the amount I've learned, I did learn at Stanford, the people and the connections at Stanford were great. Oh, yeah. Beautiful campus. I, I, you know, I didn't probably enjoy it as much as I would now if I went back, I'd have a yeah. lot more fun, I think. You know, I was very studious. I also, to be fair, went from UNR to Stanford, which 
in the time, uh, two years into it, because I started the master's program, then the PhD, I was only one of two uh, uh, state um, college students that got into the PhD program out of 38. So 36 students got in, but it was from Harvard or Yale or MIT. It wasn't from University of Nevada, Camarino. So I had to work my ass off, to be honest. It was really tough. So yeah, uh, it was well, it's beyond I, impressive to even be in the room, let alone be do so well there. What did you write? Um, tell me about your dissertation. What was that about? Yeah, so I started, so that's a great question. So when I, I went to Stanford, I, I did a summer internship at Silicon Graphics. And, and again, I, I had this gaming company on an Apple IIe. So I went to Stanford thinking I'll do something in computer graphics. That was kind of the natural, the professional version of gaming. And again, this is before gaming and Zynga. Everything is ultra popular now, right? These are just PC games. And so I started doing computer graphics, um, but um, for some other things we, we should get back to in terms of some of the hacking, my hacking days that started in high school, um, I started in data science pretty early on. And so I, I wanted to find out how I could apply um, analytics and uh, machine learning, computer graphics in, in one field together. So that's kind of how I got into uh, um, what I'm doing today. So the dissertation was on discovering trends in text data. Oh, so basically we were so taking, ahead of your time. Right, we're taking um, these machine learning algorithms and we're applying them to the internet to find patterns. So I had um, that following summer, I had done a research assistantship at IBM Alden Research Center, and we were looking at applying machine learning to the U.S. patent database. IBM wanted to find areas that they were strong in patents, but other major companies didn't have patents. So they could practically license those patents. So wow. I built a patent miner, which used text mining algorithms to find correlations of patents. So coming back to Stanford, I teamed up with a, a pure mine, um, somebody that we know, a guy named Sergey Brin. <laughs> so Sergey and I actually started Google together at Stanford um, as, a, as a research project in 1994. So again, this is years before Google as a company. And we were both doing our PhD thesis on this engine um, again, before Google even had a search uh, component. So Google is about crawling the web to build a corpus of, of web pages so we could run these analytic experiments. So go back to this. And then I also don't want to miss your hacking story because this is crazy, crazy, crazy. Um, but wait, so you start Google with, with Sergey and tell me about that. Yeah, so that was, uh, again, it was uh, Jeff Ullman was the professor um, at that point. He was chair of the computer science department at Stanford. And it was just Sergey and I in a room on the fourth floor of the Gates Computer Science Building. And we were, um, again, we're crawling the web to find correlations between web pages. I was trying to think about building a recommender system. So if people who go to this website might like these other websites. So Yahoo had just gotten created so that, that you remember, this is the early, early days of the internet as we know it today, not yeah. the darknet, but the internet. And so Sergey, um, to his credit, wrote the code in Perl and Python, um, Larry Page came into our research team maybe a year or two into it. So he was actually a late addition to that. But so between the three of us, we spent you know, a couple of years just using this as a, a basis to do our PhD thesis. So Sergey and I were both in the, uh, the database group in the computer science team, uh, computer science department rather, uh, and just using this as a, a you know, hacking environment. It was a couple of years into it where uh, a professor, uh, Larry's uh, Larry Page's uh, advisor, a guy named um, Rajiv Matwani, he was a graph theory professor, uh, has since passed away in a tragic accident, which is really terrible. He brought forth this concept that the internet is a graph, 
And if you look at nodes in the graph, they're all connected, right? So the nba.com homepage has at this point, millions of other pages pointing to it. So he asked a question, said, well, why don't we rank pages when you search for something, right? You type in a keyword like NBA, but National Basketball Association. When you rank pages, why do what the industry does is they look at the weighting of keywords on a web page, like how many times the web page talks about the NBA? Why don't we use the graph structure of the internet itself? So a new layer of information. Why don't we use that to sort pages? And out of that came PageRank the absolute core of the Google search engine. So then we added a search box and that started the true birth of what we see today commercially is Google. Um, to Larry and Sergey's credit, they tried to sell and license Google to make some money as grad students. So we tried to take it out and sell it for a million dollars. It's all true story. This is 1995, maybe 96. Um, they tried to, I, it, as I recall, it was Yahoo, Inc. to me and Novell. And they actually went with our professor and tried to license the Google uh, page rank for a million dollars to these companies like Yahoo that already had a search, um, Inc. To, Inc. to me, AltaVista, all these companies that were doing different search algorithms and websites, and nobody wanted to buy it. <laughs> and interestingly enough, nobody want, no one saw the value in a better search because there was no business model. So remember Google uh, in the early days of search the idea of paid ads, the cost per click ads, that was never even invented. So Bill Gross invented that concept, I think it was 1996 in California, uh, later became overtures called goto.com. It wasn't years later to where those business models merged. So Google was a great tool and research project, but it wasn't a business, right? There's no, there's no way to make money with it. So at what point did you part ways with them and how did that whole thing happen? Well, like, and, and what would happen if you were still there? Well, <laughs> I guess my 10%, you know, beneficial ownership might've been 5%. And I would have probably driven a lot of the machine learning uh, AI components that Craig Silverstein, some of the very early, uh, they hired Peter Norvig from Jungly. So these are all people I know from, from back in the olden days that were probably in the first, you know, 50 people at, at, uh, at Google. So I was working on this. Um, there was another uh, research project called, um, basically it spun out of the database group called Jungle E in 1996. And so Jungle E is a Hindi word. It means of the jungle. And the concept was the internet is a jungle. So we'll apply technology to structure the internet. So Jungle E is a very advanced, what we call a virtual database management system. So basically Jungle E treated the internet like a big database. So rather than, for instance, do a keyword search, if you're looking for a used car, rather than type in used um, 1995 Red Honda Accord, you could actually do structured search for those things. And it would actually go across classified listings and find all the websites that had used Hondas. And so that was, to me, a much um, harder technical problem than Google. And it had a business need, right? Consumers needed to do and in, in, in sort of structure the internet better. Um, it was quite successful up to 1998, and then Jeff Bezos decided to acquire Jungly, and he had this vision for Amazon, and this is back when Amazon only sold books, and I knew nothing of Amazon, really. I wasn't in Seattle. I was in the Bay Area, mm -hmm. but Jeff had this vision, and he said, I believe, and he came down, right, the, the acquisition was announced, and it was in August 8th uh, of 1998. He came down and said, I have this vision for Amazon. 
I believe Amazon is going to be the place to find, discover, and buy anything in the world. Even if Amazon doesn't stock it, I want consumers, consumers will want to come to Amazon to find anything in the world. And, you know, frankly, to his credit, look what they've done, right? They oh my gosh. fully execute on that vision. But this is back when it was just selling books. Mm -hmm. So he acquired uh, Jungly. And at that point, because Amazon, 24% of Amazon sales were in California, we had to choose. We either stay in California and don't come to Amazon as part of the acquisition of Jungly or move to Seattle. And of course, I was young. Um, it was a good financial outcome. And Jeff gave me the opportunity to build really the first data science team and data analytics team at Amazon. So for me professionally, and just the excitement of being around Jeff and the early, the early leadership team at Amazon was really thrilling. So well, it's all really thrilling, but the people that you're talking about, I mean, are top, top, top of their game. And so it is one of these weird sliding doors things that you're like behind door number one, you know, and if you're just motivated by financial, which is so interesting as a recruiter, because yeah. we have, especially tech candidates, turn opportunities down that are maybe more money if they can have a different opportunity where they can have more impact on the product. Right. And so that's that's actually stuff that you hear. And you do hear these stories of like, and I could have been worth X, Y, Z right. amount of money. I can't even imagine. Like, I'm sure you do that math every now and then. <laughs> I do. And oh, I use that, I, by the way, I use that as a recruiting tool and tactic. And I, and I do it with full transparency and honesty. So what I, I, I do, Shauna, for instance, when people ask, like, I don't know if I should join you at the startup, or I don't know I should leave my career and go from A to B, you know, I tell them the story. And I said, you know, if I had a mentor, someone like you or someone in their life that was giving them advice, the advice someone would have probably given me is, hey, go to Amazon. That's great. But, you know, you were working with Sergey and Larry for five years. So take your stock and go to Seattle. My mentality, though, was I don't deserve to keep my stock because I'm not staying on with Sergey and Larry while they went to get Google. Yeah, Corporate. when you're so, young, you don't know these things. And to get that right. advice to just say, hey, I need to hold on to what I built. Absolutely. Right. Today, that wouldn't happen. I mean, right. your younger self, you would say, for sure. For sure. Just put that stock aside. And if I feel bad about it, I can donate it for something. Exactly. And are you still in touch with those guys? Not recently. Probably the last time I spent quality time with Sergey uh, back when he was married was at the World Economic Forum, which is 2008 and 9. So my last company, Medio Systems, before we were acquired by Nokia, were invited to go to the World Economic Forum, and I saw them yeah. there. You know, at and that time, his interest was on energy futures and things at Google that weren't as fun as building better search algorithms. Yeah, and all the things that you've done, it sounds like you've had. Um, a little bit of this Midas touch, like you've, you've had a lot of success. Are there any um, areas where you say like, I wish that I had done this differently or things, I mean, aside from the holding <laughs> under the stock, um, any areas where you have felt, felt like you failed or didn't quite hit what you were trying to achieve? Well, it's interesting you mentioned Midas. I, I, this is just tidbits for your audience. Um, the team that Sergey started before it was called Google was called Midas actually. Oh. And it was, a, it was a, a, an acronym for mining data at Stanford, but it, the concept was the Midas touch, everything it turns to gold because data mining was digging for the gold. So oh, interesting. An, that was the name of the team that bore uh, born the, the Google concept. Um, look, the answer to your question is yes. I can't think of one per se all, other than to say I'm failing all the time in small ways and incremental ways, but that's part of my ethos. And I think what makes great entrepreneurs is the embrace of failure, right? If you're afraid to fail, then you're not going to be trying hard enough to break in and be innovative. So, um, I, but there are lots of failures that happen on a daily basis. You know, the big ones, I, 
obviously you talked about you not sort of thinking about the stock situation of, of Google. Um, I did uh, I did also have an opportunity to join Yahoo as the first employee. That was actually my first semester at, at Stanford. I was in a, a, a class, uh, CS394, which is business for computer scientists. It was taught. So again, I went to Stanford to be a computer scientist, to be a business person. So I'm like, okay, it's a 300 level class, but I'm taking it. And it was taught by really two great faculty, a guy named David Liddell, who ran a, a, a company in the Bay Area called Interval Research Corporation. It was Paul Allen, a Paul Allen company, 100 million invested, 10 million per year to find the next consumer innovation. And then a guy named Fred Gibbons, who had um, founded Software Publishers Corporation, a very early PC-based um, software company in the 80s. So they're teaching us good business practice. And at the very end of the class, I had a peer review a business plan and my grade was dependent on how good I did on that and objective. So it was the Yahoo business plan. And I gave it a D minus because I thought it was the dumbest idea I've ever heard of. Uh, number one, it's like who would go to work for a company called Yahoo? Uh, yet another hierarchical orifice of organization. That's what Yahoo that's what it stood for. That's, oh, what, that's what it stands for. It's from Lex and Yak. And then again, go back to reference geek OG. Uh, so Lex and Yak, if you're familiar with Lex and Yak, then you'll be comfortable with Yahoo. But the concept of Yahoo, I, again, was very simple, right? It's their business plan is we're going to pay grad students, this is true, to search the web, to categorize web pages like a movie listings or something into one of like 12 Yahoo taxonomies. And at the time, remember, the internet was like 1,200 web pages, right? 1993. So their business model is get paid to search the web. But um, they also, their business model was also to have advertisements. So they created the CPM idea, like yeah. we'll put ads on the web and, and they'll sell, you know, Doritos and Cheetos. So my comment to them was, I don't know why that's a good business model because the internet was largely .edu, right? It was all computer scientists at universities. So I'm like, they're not, you know, computer scientists aren't very brand loyal. Do you know the difference between Doritos or Cheetos? Probably not. Interesting. Not you weren't realizing the consumer, Yeah. Right. I wasn't projecting it forward. Right. So that's a failure, big failure. Right? I was so myopic about being a great computer scientist and being great to the Stanford brand. I didn't think about what could be. You know, it's early. Yeah. yeah. I went but I also there was a machine learning way to categorize the Internet automatically using machine learning. So I wrote up the algorithm and said, here, this is what you should implement. So they said, great, come and join us and build it. And I remember laughing and saying, no, nope, you can't pay me enough to give up my Ph.D. and come to Yahoo. Oh my gosh. These so are crazy stories. I, yes, those are exactly. Those are crazy stories. And so tell me your Jungly um, acquisition. What role did you play at Jungly and, and where were you when you got acquired as far as the size of the company? And then where did you take it once you got to Amazon as far as um, running the, the IT data mining? Yeah, so Jungly, uh, I was the first employee at Jungly, so I knew the founding team. There were effectively all other PhD students in the database group, actually, at Stanford, but they were a few years ahead of me. So I joined as the first employee once they incorporated and the idea was, was sound. And so I ran the applications group, basically building these smart apps. Uh, a, a recommend, ultimately, it was a recommendations engine on the internet. So if you're looking for a used Red Honda Accord, I'll say, here's other things you should look at. And that actually, when Jungly was acquired, then two years later, we were probably 100 people. That was actually what formed the new generation of Amazon's recommendation engine. So one of the things I'm proud about, um, what most proud about at Amazon was taking the team and the IP that they had and building a new generation of recommender system. So when you go to Amazon now and it says people who like the following also like the following, that's effectively my PhD thesis. Um, now, I'm assuming it's been rebuilt a dozen times in 20 years, 
But I can tell you when I joined in 1998, the recommendations engine component of Amazon, the analytic side of Amazon that would recommend things was about 3% of all sales. And when I left years later, it was about 15% of top oh, line. Wow. I've been told today it's more than 30% of all revenue comes from people buying things. Oh, I'm sure I do it all the time. Exactly. I do it all but the time. It's a great use case of, of being data-driven. Right? That's one of the things I love about Jeff and I love about Amazon that unfortunately I think maybe is lost in today's view of Amazon versus the Mary Meeker days in the early 2000s, late 90s, is that Amazon is an IT company, right? It's a tech company that has really proven and shown how it can one can, in a best-of-class way, use consumer data to deliver a great consumer experience. Yeah. And that mantra for me was very addictive. So I, learning those lessons and having the chance to work with Jeff and, and Rick Delzell as a CIO at the time, uh, those are really great opportunities. And how come you left there? Uh, you know, that's a good question. I, I wonder some days if I should have stayed, you know, thinking back uh, at a company when I joined Amazon, I think we were about 5,000 people in total compared to however it's a million now or something crazy. Uh, I left because again, I'm entrepreneurial. So I saw a business opportunity. Um, there was a opportunity I felt that consumers could do and, and have better, more objective decisions in, in banking. And so we took uh, what is known as a FICO score, which I think most of us now know what your FICO score, it's this metric built by a company called Fair Isaac that lords over us. It's a single number that's the most important number in our life, sadly, and it determines creditworthiness. So we took a FICO score and we supercharged it with more real-time analytics and more data that banks have about their consumers. And we made it 40 to 60% better. So if FICO says you're a 680, we might know you're a 720. And so we built this as a SaaS-based service before there was really SaaS. And we sold it to all the major banks in the country uh, so for me, I, I saw an opportunity to take the learnings from Amazon and apply it in a business context and build kind of a standalone company. And we did that here in Bellevue. It was quite successful. Um, and then it was acquired two years into it by First Data Corporation. Yeah. What stage of the company growth do you like most? Because I mean, you just love this whole, like, let me start a company again. There are certain um, stages and roles where people thrive. Like, at what stage do you thrive and, and in what role are you at your best? That's a great question. I, I, I certainly have to say I, I thrive the most at these early stages, right? It's about, so it, for me, it's about the product. So I'm always thinking product and in, in tech. Um, I am thinking about market traction, product market fit, but it's always about kind of the innovation and, and what hasn't been discovered, yeah. right? Trying to be forward looking. Um, and the biggest thing for me that I get most excited by is recruiting to be honest. So, you know, CEO, I'd argue has three fundamental duties. So one is the vision of the company. The two is financing and three is recruiting, right? That is literally the job of the CEO. Those are the things you do. So what I have come to appreciate when I look back on my career, um, Shauna, and I think about it, I've been blessed to be fortunate at the intersection of these great companies, but it's also great people. So when I think about why I got into Stanford or why I was successful, many times I can attribute that to the super smart people that I work with or hired. So my hiring philosophy is only hire people smarter than me. And if I keep that bar, if I'm a B and I'm hiring an A minus or an A or whatever, then I know that I, the likelihood of success is going to be higher, partly because I'm going to learn by osmosis, right? I'm going to learn something from that person. Again, going back to the level of learning, right? That's what drives me. But also the, you know, it hit by the bus theorem, right? If something happens to me, 
the people that I've hired that are smarter than me that have done it before can take the vision and run with it. So finding like-minded people that are smarter than me that care passionately about the product or the company starts to build that scale. And once you get that critical mass going, like a snowball it becomes super exciting. And you know this, you've done this yourself. Yeah. And so tell me when, when you say smarter than you, what do you mean by that? Because in your one, in your category of like, you know, CS degree from Stanford PhD, I don't know that there's many people that are smarter than you. You mean people that are going to maybe compliment you where you're weak? Yeah, that's a fair point. Because Um, they're not necessarily going to be smarter than you and where you thrive. Yeah, yes and no, um, but you, you are correct. So it, I do believe you one should hire to their weaknesses without a doubt, right? Too many people hire to their strengths. So they hire people that will support them in an area that, you know, I want to hire a, a hole that I have. Mm-hmm. So, so that's, you know, for me, it, it's being CTO, CEO is a strength. Um, the holes are the business development or marketing or sales or whatnot. Mm-hmm. Although of course you have to do all those roles. Yeah. Um, I would think that you'd be good at the biz dev and the marketing. You, you, I, I do. I'm actually good at all those. Cause yeah, I, I think that you're pretty good at those things. What about like personality assessments or any sort of assessments to point out your, um, your style or your, um, your, yeah, your weaknesses? So like how well do you know yourself in that way? So I'm an ENTP. Uh, and I, I, I've done other assessments and I actually love doing that stuff because I'm a quants analytics, uh, guy. I just have, it's been a long time since I took the other ones. The, the, I would say one of the challenging things of being a CEO, I, I think many entrepreneurs or many investors look for ENTJs. So that last is, you know, do you, do you make judgments quick, right? I'm a little bit slower to make a decision, but I'm doing it with infinite amounts of data and knowledge and mm-hmm. sort of breadth and market awareness. So tell me about the founding of Plunk. I just 2019, um, right before this crazy time in, in yeah, the so, world's history. So, so I, I, after Intelligent Results, started Medio Systems, which built um, kind of Amazon-style analytics uh, in the cloud for mobile network offers, kind of basically thinking about the mobile device as the next computing paradigm. And that was breakthrough and revolutionary, was acquired by Nokia. So I did the big company thing too, right? That's kind of where I started to know my strengths. And that was international travel, big team, very different than a startup. Um, The thing that I saw though in 2019 with my co-founder, David Bloom and I, that, you know, so, so you have to sort of appreciate that my bar at this time of life is if I can't build a tech company that has the opportunity to be Google size or bigger, then I wouldn't bother doing it. And that's not, and people misinterpret that many times. I think when they, they get to know me or they, they just know me at a superficial level, I don't mean we're trying to beat Google by any means. My point is I've seen Google and Yahoo and Amazon now starting at early, you know, Google at very nascent scale and grow to, you know, where it is today. So why can't anyone do that? That's my philosophy. So if I can't think of a business idea that could get to be that big, I'm not going to do it in this point in life. So Plunk though is really interesting. I have a, a strong belief that in the next 10 years, the biggest disruption that we're going to see as consumers and technologists is the intersection between fintech, prop tech, and AI. So I am a data scientist. So clearly every problem is a, you know, I'm a hammer. So everything I see has to be solved by data or machine learning. And that is either a strength or, or a benefit. And one of the areas that I felt had not really benefited humanity across the board was residential real estate. And it's something that we all, you know, it's our homes, right? We spend a third of our life there. It turns out it's um, our homes are our biggest financial asset in the U.S. It's 30%, I'm sorry, 50% of our net worth at age 30, and it's 80% of retirement. 
And that's how my parents, I just told you the story, right? They founded my career based on a home equity line of credit. And I didn't know what that was, but they took a gamble. You know, we pay for our kids' colleges through this. So when we really looked at this and said, wow, no one has really approached home ownership as a journey over decades um, and uh, using kind of a robo-advisor approach, right? Helping consumers make better, smarter financial decisions about their home. The industry today focuses on the transaction. So you've got great examples in Seattle, companies that we all love. So Zillow, Redfin, uh, Jet Closing, right? Same a few. These are companies that are kind of focused on the 5% of homes that are bought and sold every year. And that's great. But there is really this void to say, well, what, what about the rest of the 10, 20, 15, 30 years that you live in your home? How do you think about your home as a financial asset? And so we're, we're applying some brand new innovative machine learning AI techniques with really interesting data that exists mm -hmm. about the environment around us. And we're merging those together. And that's kind of the genesis of Plum. So tell me about like, what is the exact business model? How do you make money? And um, what problem, I guess, are you solving? Right. That's a great point. So the company's vision has three major components to it. And we're on the first journey of that. And that's on home renovation. So it's understanding that the equity homeowners have is, is significant, but many of us are thinking about remodeling, adding, a, a, excuse me, a Zoom room. Um, we're thinking about, you know, all these upgrades or, or the new buyers that are buying homes are having to buy the home so quickly, they're not given a chance to renovate them or, or choose. Uh, it turns out home remodeling is the largest retail sector in the, in the country right now. It's a $350 billion industry growing to 500 billion. So um, it's also recession proof. When we get into recessions, we tend to hunker down and invest in our home. So the two areas that we're generating revenue on initially are what um, we call a home renovation loan. So we're really excited by this. We did not invent this, but it's a very, fairly new financial product. So if you or I were going to you know, improve our home or redo our kitchen or bathroom or, or add a pergola or a deck or whatnot, you can either fund that through cash. A lot of people, unfortunately, put it on credit cards or they do a home equity line of credit. The problem with those, though, is they're not tax deductible and they're pretty high interest rate, especially if you're doing a credit card. And so the concept of a home renovation loan is a blend between essentially a new construction loan and a HELOC. And what we are able to do with the analytics is show the future value of your home and the lenders will lend against that future value. So let's say you're going to do a $150,000 kitchen upgrade. The banks will lend 75 cents on the dollar for you to do that upgrade because they know you're putting that directly in the house. And because of the analytics and the history, we can show that $150,000 put in your kitchen today will become $300,000 you know, five years from now. So it's a really exciting product. It also is tax deductible and it's a basically at a 5% interest rate um, and it's interest only for five years, no prepayment penalty, and then it converts to a normal loan. So it's a really easy way to help homeowners get equity out of their home to improve their home, which is what a lot of consumers are doing. So that's kind of the first one. The, the second is referral to contractors. Finding contractors is hard, especially hard in this time because there's such great demand. So we're using analytics to match up the project with the, the contractor that will be optimal for your home. And that's so these are both kind of lead gen type business models. And what's the third? Uh, the third. So that's one that's one of the, the home renovations one that the second um, path of the vision is cost savings. So using the same analytics we know about the home, for instance, we could help you with identifying a better home insurance product. So think about this. We get discounts if we're a good driver in our automobile insurance, or you'll get, for instance, better health insurance, better price for your health insurance if you're exercised and you're healthy. But nobody yet has come up with a 
an insurance model, say, if you're a good homeowner, right, you're doing what you and I do, which is, I think you mentioned cleaning the gutters and the windows and your foundation isn't cracked or you're in your kitchen, then why don't we get a discount on our homeowner's insurance? Because today everyone pays the same. And that's pretty groundbreaking, right? Even the lemonades and hippos aren't yet doing that. Mm -hmm. So we have the data, Plunk has unique data. So that's a way to help people with an aspirin, right? We're going to help them save real money every month out of their pocket. So that's the next journey for Plunk. And then the third is income opportunities. Uh, Airbnb is a great example, right? Even my parents have used Airbnb for one of their rooms at their house to help offset the cost to, to living. But there's really literally dozens and dozens of different businesses that will help you as a homeowner generate income. So a good example is uh, Sunrun. So this is now a public company. Sunrun will come install solar panels on your roof for free. You don't pay for it. They get to sell the power back to the grid, but you get to keep all the power that's generated because you get free power and you get money uh, from the power company. So this, they're going around the country, you know, doing this um, all over. And so that's an example of an opportunity to help a consumer identify how to make money on their home, but not have to um, spend it to do that. It's so, and my brain is going so fast right now because there's so many ideas and questions that I have, but it's just weird timing because a friend of mine came over, he's a home builder and we walked through the house. So he came over like three days ago, we did a walkthrough and exactly this is what he said to me. He goes, so you know how a car needs to get like oil changes and like, you need to keep up your he has the same thing with a home. How long have you been in your house? I was like, like 10 years. He's like, okay, well, it's starting to settle. It's getting cracks. And we now have a whole game plan because he's like a machine and I am also so like, okay, great. Like, how do people find out about Plunk? If I didn't know you and wasn't introduced right. to you, how would I as a consumer know that this is a company that I should know about? Yeah, that's a great point. We uh, so we're uh, right now we're a pure play mobile company because the world is you know moving down totally. your handset. Yeah, we're talking about being able to walk around your home, take pictures of your kitchen, and have us in real time come back and tell you if you upgrade your kitchen, your value would improve by eighty seven thousand five hundred dollars. So that's why we're we're mobile. Um, we are launched right now just in Seattle, so we chose to be Seattle as a test market um, launch mm -hmm. to prove out the product market fit and prove out the some of the, the um, financial metrics and, and the unit economics. And so we just launched a couple months ago, actually, and are gaining that kind of initial cohort of users. So the way we, we typically attract um, and, and people find us is either through owned media, paid media, or kind of SEO, so kind of uh, organic. So we're out there doing um, test advertising. So we're advertising some of these things, right? Is your house getting aged? You know, does it need a facelift? You know, did you know your home is your biggest financial asset. Mm -hmm. um, did you know you could, you know, renovate your kitchen for $325 a month, right? Through a home renovation loan. So we're testing these different messages through Facebook and other means that people see mobile ads. Um, but we also have a lot of uh, our owned content. So on the Plunk website, I think we have nine different blogs right now. Yeah. So again, how to maintain your home, what are the best Yeah, kitchens? I saw them. They're great. And so do you do any sort of partnerships with real estate Bro I was just thinking like, if you went to a broker and the broker yep. could say before selling the house, like, Hey, let's put it on the market for one nine instead of one six, but between now and then like get these three things done. Cause Plunk suggests that this is going to be the ROI. Um, that's a great comment. And it's actually why we, in our series seed financing, we just closed a couple months ago. Um, I'm proud to announce that national association of realtors uh, and second century ventures invested in us literally for largely that reason. Oh, that's great. And, and how much have you raised? Uh, so we raised six and a half million. Wow. And where are you with the team right now? How many people do you have and where are you going with the growth? 
We're about 22, 23 people. Um, it's all largely technical product. You know, everyone's a doer, wears multiple hats, as you can imagine, two thirds of the company are analytic in nature. Uh, so at this point, we're growing, we're proving the test market, we're adding a few key positions to the team, right? There are some, as we grow, as any company grows, there's, there are certain technical positions that are that are core to that. And then we're really aiming for the Series A, most likely the start of the year. Wow. And how, I know that you've had exposure to so many interesting people and companies and ideas and, um, you know, business models. How do you think about, I know you really value the people side. How do you think right. about building a culture? Um, and what are kind of the core values of Plunk? Yeah, that's a great question. I the I believe strongly in kind of building a culture from the people that you hire, right? I don't believe in the top down by fiat. Say, okay, here's Amazon's list, and we're going to take these. Um, so we really uh, decided to do that as a team. And so as we got together, we thought about you know what makes us unique, and and a lot of it has to do with um, understanding the homeowner journey um, on on the business side. On the personal side, it's really about mutual team respect. You know, the team is pretty seasoned, so many of us have worked together through multiple startups. So this is really about a balanced company approach. Many of us have kids, so we recognize, you know, this isn't about working 80-hour weeks. It's about working more smartly um, and working with better tools. So that's those are some of the elements that have kind of driven our culture. That's great. And so um, as you're thinking about recruiting, what would a, like, what are your philosophies? Because sometimes people are um, kind of biased toward pedigreed backgrounds or biased toward you have to have experience specifically in our industry or are there um, kind of nuanced ways that you would describe a plunk type of rock star? Rock star. You know, I, I definitely believe my philosophy is hiring athletes, right? So you find people that are great cult for culture fits, which to me means they have a high EQ, but a high IQ as well, both. And I think that's a little bit different for us, right? We want people that are just genuinely good people, easy to talk with. Doesn't mean they're agreeable, right? It's, and so we're looking for people that want to generate conflict because they have their own sense of their own ideas. That's really important for us. And, and don't mind arguing those ideas, determine what's best, right? So that's really an important part of our culture. And that's the type of people that tend to succeed. Um, we don't go based on resume. I know Google did this in the early days. Like if you were from Stanford, great. But if not, don't bother. And then it was like maybe MIT. I don't really believe in that. Um, I do believe, though, that you want to have a good background. and You want to have applied yourself successfully. So we do typically look for people that have done startups, right? I think if you were 20 years of your career, which would be great at major Fortune 100 tech companies, that's great. But that's probably means you would be, have a tough fit right, in a small company where you don't have the resources of a, a big organization. So um, how I describe that is kind of the fast muscle twitch, right? We want people to be quick, iterate, you know, if they're wrong, that's great. Take that as a, actually a win because now you learn what not to do and they get up and they, they iterate, you know, rinse and repeat. So that kind of fast data-driven, you know, like to be in a, a very high energy culture of ultra smart people. Cause again, everyone's supposed to be hiring people smarter than themselves Absolutely. and you kind of up level the whole team and culture. And how are you looking at um, diversity as you, you know, 22 people, obviously the earlier, the better to start thinking about diversity of thought. Um, yep. What's your approach been so far? It's a good question. We don't necessarily have a proactive approach. Um, at, you know, obviously at our stage, I'm a huge fan of having a diverse team culture. Again, because my own upbringing, my experience, right, um, as I've gone through my career, and I've experienced some really phenomenal things by people that bring different perspectives based on a lot of times their culture or you know what they've done in the past. And so um, we, we're blessed that we've got a decent team of mix of men and women. I, I'd love to have more women in tech. You know, having two daughters myself, I'd 
think STEM is an area that as a society we need to encourage more of. Um, so we've been blessed to find some really phenomenal data scientists that are women that are early in their careers and seeing their energy level and they really bring a different approach to the team yeah. is, is really thrilling. So that's, you know, I, as an industry, we need to improve that for sure. Well, yeah, I think that there's a lot of intention there and it's good that you're thinking about it. Um, so as far as Plunk goes and just like overall your career and your life, are you defining yourself right now personally in your private moments as being successful? And if so, how do you measure that? And I guess where where are you going? And at what point will you be like, oh my God, I've made it? Because you've had so many incredible um, experiences right. on this journey so far. Well, I think that's a trick question, um, but it's a fair one. I, I've been coached throughout my last 20 years of my career that one should not... Um, define themselves that their success by the business they do. And the way my dad pitched this to me when I was very young is, is that you can bankrupt a company, but you can't bankrupt an education. It's another way to look at it. So I, I strive to not define my success by the companies I've done, but I'll be honest, I'm, you know, like human and it's part of my drive to bank a great company. So many of my startups have really been my family, right? I talk about my children as the people in the company because I believe in it. That's how much I, I bleed and wear the colors. That being said, now that I'm um, older, have a family, absolutely, it's all about family, right? And it's about my children and whether I can set a better example than my parents did and can I get them into technology, but not coerce, you know, coerce them into it. Yeah. You know, I want them to fail. Um, I want my, you know, daughters to get or my kids to be arrested, you know, three times by the FBI. Before Can you please tell that story? Just, I cannot, <laughs> I cannot let you off this podcast without, just give me a little <laughs> nugget. Come on, Brian. I All right. Little. Uh, the little nugget. So, so we were talking early on about how I got into technology. And one of the things that I didn't share yet is that um, I was in the early eighties, there was a, a group called the inner circle. And it was a group of teenagers, largely, that found a way to hack into the U.S. phone system uh, and called phone freaking. So I'll spare the details, but it was a way to... <laughs> sounds very to sounds very naughty. It, 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 yes. I mean, that's why we got in trouble for it. Um, but it was, for me, again, a learning opportunity. So there was, again, not many people. Um, there was a group called the 9600 BOD um, Elite. And so this was a group of maybe 50 people in the nation, teenagers like me, that figured out how to use this, the system operators, basically, you know, run a, a bulletin board system. So BBSs, this is, again, before the internet. And computers would use modems to communicate with each other. And we would transfer pirated software, which is bad. And no one should do that anymore, but it's done. And we would get status by the more things we did. Well, fast forward, it turns out um, the movie War Games came out, which is one of my favorite. And it went from, you know, five people in Reno doing this to like 350 because the movie War Games popularized Joshua, the auto dialer hacking into NORAD. And that, by the way, is based on what we were doing. So it's a, it's a movie based on fact. So um, FBI tapped our phone line, found out that I was doing this. I showed up from school, this being a high school kid, again, a geek, beginning, and it, you know, being punished by the football team because I was a geek. <laughs> uh, and the FBI was there with the head of Pacific Telesis Security with a big folder and they basically said, you're in a lot of trouble. And so they, uh, they basically, you know, I was under 18. So they told me my parents are going to prison. I was going to juvenile hall and they probably served 10 to 20 year prison sentences. Oh I'm my only gosh. So I thought that was a little intimidating. 
Um, so I, long story short, I helped uh, the Pacific Telesis and FBI help engineer the, the digital phone system by turning over these box plans and how we were hacking into the phone system. Oh my gosh. And so that was kind of the first, my first foray, uh, but that didn't stop me, of course, because I'm very tenacious. So then I thought, well, I was running for student body treasurer in uh, my high school, and I ended up uh, printing uh, basically $100 bills. And I gave them out to kids because I'm like, how many kids have seen a $100 bill? But apparently I didn't enlarge them big enough on the copier. And so the person I was running with called the Secret Service and they pulled me out of my class, my senior English AP class. Very embarrassing when you're like valedictorian and you get hauled off by the Secret Service. And I had to pull down all this, quote, counterfeit money from the, the halls of the school and people's lockers. And the answer is I went to Kinko's and the default enlargement is 120%. But the law says you can make copy of money if it's 133% or 66% the original size. Um, so yeah, I got in big trouble for that, but got that. So no, no then, prison time? No, no, uh, arrested, but never convicted. So, you know, they were, they understood it was, uh, I didn't, I was actually trying to make money. I was just trying to do this to get elected. And, and I did, of course, it's Nevada. So I, it worked. I got elected to student body treasurer. <laughs> The part that probably is the most meaningful to my career, though, is the third time and last time, for the most part, uh, that my dad was called by a state assemblyman, and the, the he thought, the assemblyman thought that the state of Nevada lottery was, was rigged because the people winning the lottery, and this is in the late 80s in Nevada, were people that worked in the mining industry, worked in gaming, but literally, like, everyone that kept winning the lottery had a career in one of those fields. So he asked... My dad, if I would be in the hacker, because now I'm known in Reno, right? I got busted and my name was in the newspaper. I was in the National Enquirer with Share. That's a different but related article. Um, I can send that to you. You need to send it to me. So so basically, they asked me to look into it. And I spent five years of my life uh, looking into this. And I found that the state of Nevada lottery was, in fact, rigged. And people were choosing who would win the lottery based on political favors and campaign donations. And unfortunately, what I didn't know is I was being set up as a patsy. So the final year I was looking to do this, they did the same trick where they traced the phone line and they found and the doorbell ring and there are sheriffs and FBI there for my arrest. At that point, I'm 18. I'm going to prison because they said I was trying to extort public officials. And what I was really doing is finding this this corruption in the state of Nevada Department of Data Processing. Oh, my gosh. So I went to prison for like about two hours by the time I got released. And then it was basically all gloves off. And I spent the next couple of years of my life really becoming a true data scientist and proving to the industry, to the media that the lottery was rigged. And as a result, the governor of the state of Nevada was found guilty and had to, was forced to resign from public office. And I was part of a process to privatize them part, the entire department of data processing for the state of Nevada which back in the late 90s or early 90s um, was about $16 million it costs every year. So I was saving the state 16 million bucks back then. Uh, so as a result of this, I was going to Stanford bookstore. My dad would drive me there. I'd get all these books on statistics and probability and data mining. And that's how I got into data mining was I did this as a kid to prove the lottery is rigged. So that ultimately led to this proclamation that the uh, assembly and Senate at Nevada issued basically say, stating, you know, they thought I was the bad guy and I proved them wrong and I helped save the state millions and millions of dollars. And it was signed by the governor 
like two weeks before he was forced out of office. Oh my gosh. We, need, so we do need a book, Brian. We're writing a book and I want to know what you're going to call it. That's a good point. And a movie. There's a good a movie. A book, here too. a movie. I, I can say I had you on the podcast when this is like the best, you have the best stories. I'm sure there's a million more too. Maybe we have to have 2.0. There you a, go. I'm all for that. One. So I'm curious on a personal side, um, you mentioned yeah. you have two daughters, right? Yep. And how old are they? Two daughters and a son. Two daughters so and a son. Nicole, so Nicole just turned 11 yesterday and Rachel is eight and Gavin's five. So girl, girl, boy. Girl, girl, boy. And what do you yep. like to do for fun on the weekends and um, how do you like to spend time with them? Yeah, I, we, we're blessed to have another um, place on the other side of the mountain. So we try to get out in the mountains every other week or so. So getting out with nature, mountain bike riding, just anything really I can spend time with them Yeah. Um, when they're not playing Minecraft or Roblox or, you know, yeah. the usual thing. Yes. Uh, so I, um, a lot of stuff I love doing to be honest, they're kind of home improvement projects. Yeah. They're all, you know, it's staying in the fence or working. Well, you're in the pool. perfect business. You're like working I, in. That's yeah. the reason why. And I'm trying to teach them. I'm like, okay, you better watch. Cause when you get to be a teenager, this is how you're earning your allowance. And they're like, what's an allowance. I'm like, well, that's how you get the Robux that's <laughs> smart you might need to come to my house and help me with my kids and so how do you set yourself up you've got so much going on um how do you set yourself up for a good week um you know i i try the probably the most important thing that determines if i have a good week is uh if i do enough prep kind of sunday evening going into monday because monday we have what we call our weekly rebuilder for residential <laughs> real estate um team meeting we talk about kind of a stand-up we talk about what we did last week and what we're going to accomplish this week. So it's kind of fast paced, you know, literally stand up. So if I'm not as the leader, if I'm kind of not prepared for that, and that certainly happens, life happens, then it doesn't go as well. Yeah. So for me, it's, you know, get good sleep. I really do try to, you know, shut down on the weekend, although it's tough running a startup, but totally. that's the work life balance. I'm always working to balance it. The more I balance it and I do only family stuff on say the weekend or an evening, then I always do better the next day, but you know, that lesson, I seem to be relearning a lot. Yeah. Well, it's great. It's so great to have you on the podcast. My final question is what fuels you? What fuels me? I, so I took an oath when I did my undergrad and it was let the love of learning rule mankind. And so to be honest, it's uh, making sure I'm doing something where I'm learning every day. Hopefully I'm failing most times. And, and now that I have a family showing them that pattern and showing my coworkers that it's okay to fail and we need to be changing the world, um, whatever the field is, right? I have a particular area, but we as the, the occupants of this planet have an opportunity to make it better. So it's incumbent on us to make that happen. Thank you for listening to the What Fuels You podcast. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Spotify, and follow us on social media to keep up with the latest news and episodes. You can also contact us at podcast at fueltalent.com to provide feedback, ask questions, and share topics or guests you would like us to cover in the future. We hope you feel inspired by our guests and that we have helped fuel your day. Join us next time for another episode of What Fuels You.